Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. It's good to be back. Yeah, the original crew. The original. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Got a great episode. We're going back to the classic Weeds three-act structure, uh, but we do want to let you know while we're getting more classic here. We're also doing something innovative this week. Tomorrow- Ooh, we're innovating? Tomorrow, Wednesday, there's going to be the first in our series of Weeds midterm specials, extra episodes every Woo-hoo. Wednesday through the day after the election. It's going to be great. Ellen Nelson is going to be joining us talking about uh, women in the midterms. Be fantastic. Uh, I've got on the Ezra Klein Show, I just put out a podcast with Patrick Deneen, author of Why Liberalism Failed, which is a fascinating uh, episode of like a very radical critique of not just left liberalism, but right liberalism. And then on Thursday, I've got Rebecca Traster talking about all of this. <laughs> and so stay tuned. That was a great conversation. So take a look for that on the EK show on Thursday. Speaking of all of this. Speaking of all of it. There's a lot of it. <laughs> Brett Kavanaugh. Um, but why don't we talk? Where are we right now? So well, let's set the table. Okay. So Kavanaugh testified. Republicans rallied around him. And then it seemed that Jeff Flake got cold feet. And Can I say that a little yeah. differently? I, I want to note here, like, the incredible power of confrontational activism. Like, Jeff Flake was confronted in an elevator by rape survivors. And, like, you could see his face, right? Like, who, who like, forced him to see them as human beings and, like, get out of the Republican-Democrat. Like, this is just a political fight thing. And after that, I mean, we can't say 100 percent for sure that's what did it. But given that he had said he was going to vote yes on Kavanaugh before that and then that happened and then he came out and created this coalition to force a, a, an investigation. Like, like, it's amazing work that those activists shouldn't have had to do. And, you know, I think in one of the cases, like, that person's mother found out about her sexual assault because she saw the video. But it made a big difference. Yes. So the FBI investigation got underway as a result of Flake's called feet. And there had been widespread reporting before this happened that the White House's fear about this FBI investigation, which may just be spin because there's often a lot of spin, was not so much about the investigation itself, but that delay would produce more stories about Brett Kavanaugh that would make him look bad. And I would say that that's true. Longtime Weeds listeners will know that I have been saying for a long time that Brett Kavanaugh keeps lying about things. And I think Friday afternoon's coverage of Kavanaugh's testimony really emphasized the strong and indignant nature of his denials and how Republicans had rallied around his his banner. But now 
four, five days after that, we have seen more focus on the fact that many of the things he said are not true. And some other thing. I mean, there's like a range of verifiability, right? Like at the end of the day, Christine Ford's charges against him are extremely grave, but it's very hard to know for sure, like what's up there. It's quite clear that the people who Kavanaugh said under oath had refuted her testimony just did not in fact do that. Which is a huge deal, I think. Right. And then there's this whole middle ground stuff, right? It's like, how sure am I that Beach Week Ralph Club is about drinking until you puke, not about spaghetti sauce? You know, I, I don't know, man. But there's like so many things But there's he also said. another category of like, Lies about things like about the drinking age in Maryland, where he keeps doubling down on this fact that he said he was able to legally drink in Maryland. He he was 17 when the drinking age was 18. Like, there's also these lies that just don't make a ton of sense to me. Although Matt Matt convinced me that might have an explanation. Wait, wait, what do you mean? That D.C.'s drinking age was actually 18. I mean, I think that's— And so they're coming in here to buy beer, which is, like, not quite legal, but— I don't—I mean, okay, fine. Yeah, I mean, I I think with a lot of this, I I do want to be careful because there's a lot of— the P word is flying around a a lot here of of perjury. And a lot of this stuff is not—at least as I understand it from having spoken to lawyers, is not— perjury. If you parse really, really closely like what Kavanaugh said about the legal drinking age, he never like denies that the legal drinking age was raised or that he may have had drinks when he was too young. And Democrats, because they were not – they didn't put like a dogged prosecutor to cross-examine him. So they all flipped around and often didn't like quite, quite nail down on on these points. But I would say it is deceptive. Right. Like the overall thrust of both his Fox News interview and then his subsequent testimony was to try to say that Brett Kavanaugh was like a pretty normal guy who had some beers every once in a while with his friends on the weekends. When like in fact we can see on his calendar like weekday drinking appointments. His yearbook is like full of jokes about what a hard partier he was. People who knew him at Yale say he was an extremely hard drinker. And there's like a sort of mini controversy today where – There's a story about this New Haven police report about a bar fight he was in in 1985. And I've seen some conservatives saying like, hey, who cares about a bar fight in 1985? And I agree, right? Like if you had just come up the day before the vote on Neil Gorsuch and there'd been like a story like he got in a bar fight once in college, you'd say like, yeah, who cares, right? But the specific reason for this is that like A friend of Kavanaugh's from college was quoted in major newspapers saying that in his opinion, Kavanaugh had been lying about his drinking habits when at Yale. And then he offered as an example of the fact that Kavanaugh was lying that one time Kavanaugh even got so aggressively drunk, he got in a bar fight and the police had to be called, right? The reason there are stories about the police report is to verify that what Chad Ludington said was true, right? And again, the fact that one thing Ludington said is true doesn't mean that everything he said is true. But in general, in life, when you have these situations where people are disagreeing about their characterization of past events, you try to assess the credibility of the witnesses, right? So like Christine Ford's alleged fear of flying 
was like put under the microscope by Republicans, not because to be afraid of flying is terrible, but because like if you're accusing someone of something, you need to be rock solid and credible, right? So they they probed her story and they didn't catch her out on anything. Kavanaugh was up there. It's the same thing, right? It's not like puking because you drank too much at a beach party proves you're a rapist. But when you're up there and you're saying, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, believe me, this woman is lying for no reason, the fact that he's up there and like he's saying stuff that's not true matters. And then when people who knew him in college are saying, look, he's characterizing what he was like in college wrong, and then they make specific verifiable claims, like the fact that those claims are verified also matters. And I mean, I think like in the larger context of this, one of the things that continues to kind of snowball for me that we talked about a little bit on Friday is just kind of this question of why stay so committed to this particular guy? You know, when I look at the investigation, I'm curious if you guys have different viewpoints on it. It seems like it was done in the expectation that it would not find anything, that this is kind of a way to get cover for voting, to say, look, we did the FBI investigation. It's still a he said, she said, we've done our due diligence. Now we can move forward on this vote. You know, you've even seen Senator Jeff Flake, who said this is a condition of his vote, saying he expects to support Kavanaugh, but he, you know, wants to go through this investigation first. You know, maybe this will go off track. Something will be found. You know, we're still in the middle of this investigation. But it still seems to raise this larger question of why stick with this particular nominee, like who Matt said, like seems to constantly be either dodging the truth or lying about the truth when there are other jurists and judges you could go after. And it seems... Like, you know, doing the investigation in a way, it's a bit of a backing off of Kavanaugh, but it's almost like a chance to double down on him, to kind of wait one week, wait it out. So there is certainly the risk of, like, other news stories coming out. But if you kind of make it through this one-week period, which we're not talking about, like, the longest time period in the world. We're talking about just the span of a week that you can make it through that one-week period, get to the other side— and confirm this guy, it, it seems like a very strong commitment on the part of the White House, on the part of Republican senators, to sticking with this nominee that they've picked versus moving on to someone else, saying, like, this guy has not proved to be a good candidate. I, I understand some of the reasons, but it just seems to me surprising how how much they stick with this guy. And, you know, what the repercussions are going to be of that going forward as like Democrat as Democrats think about like how they want to manage their Supreme Court nominations. It seems like it's setting up a pretty, you know, unfortunate and possibly quite troublesome precedent. I, I totally agree with all this. So a, a couple things here. One is that so I've been reading a lot of the Kavanaugh defenses on the right. And and something that I think helps explain the the mystery you're pointing out is that they have completely absorbed this as a like a cynical tactic the Democrats are trying out on Kavanaugh that they sort of did against Clarence Thomas and that Republicans need to break so it can't be used on every nominee going forward. There's a, a slightly unusual thing here. Republicans seem to think that possibly every nominee they put forward to the Supreme Court is going to have a series of credible sexual assault allegations lurking in their background, which there may be other ways to solve that particular vulnerability in your nominees. But there is a, a very strong view that – 
Democrats cannot be allowed to do this, that this is not about Ford. In fact, I think one of the most important tactical decisions here was to not focus on Ford or her credibility and for Republicans just turn the focus on Democrats. And if you like go back to that day, like what Kavanaugh says, what Grassley says, what Lindsey Graham says, none of them say this is a ridiculous allegation by Christine Blasey Ford. Like they all say, you know, maybe something like this happened, but her memory's probably failing. Well, hard drinker over here, his memory's perfect. But um, even if there's an amazing chart on this point that Alvin Chang did for us, um, there's two amazing charts he did, but the one that we'll put this in show notes, it shows he looked at what the different questions senators asked about. All the questions were about process. All of the senators' questions were about the Democrats and process. Their prosecutor, Rachel Mitchell, she asked some questions about the actual incident. But you actually don't see the Republican senators, to your point, asking a single question nope. about what actually happened. They repeatedly apologized to him for, for the trouble. And, of course, they, they cut off the prosecutor. But so that's one piece of it. The sticking with Kavanaugh is that this has become very tribal and, like— even if they could just replace him with somebody who would vote exactly or even more conservatively than Kavanaugh, it would still be losing. You know, once that kind of tribal status like conflict gets activated, people get very into the winning or the losing and, and they don't want to lose and they don't want to show Democrats they can do this and give them the satisfaction. So they've gotten overinvested here. I think that much is clear. But the other thing that, that I think goes to your point is that like just backing out and giving Matt some credit for having pegged this pretty clearly from the beginning – this guy shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. The way that he has comported himself throughout this affair shows he should not be on the Supreme Court. One, at this point, he's so furious at Democrats that the idea that he would be a fair judge in a case that has partisan valence is ridiculous. I mean, he came out and slashed into Democrats, called this a Clinton revenge plot. I mean, what he said was legitimately at that point getting crazy. But his absorption of this has been as a very partisan thing. And, and of course, there is a true partisan uh, cleavage in it. But he's lied a lot. He has been unbelievably like disrespectful of the committee and, and people who had been comporting themselves with a lot of dignity throughout this. It's just like as a judicial temperament question – it's going to be hard to know the truth, but what we've seen of this guy under a lot of pressure has not been what I would hope to see in a judge. And I want to answer one thing here because the thing you've seen on the right when people say this is, well, anybody who is accused and had their name dragged through the mud for a crime they didn't commit would be reacting exactly this way. And I think there are two things to say about that. One is just in the political space. Like think about Hillary Clinton in the Benghazi hearings. She had also had her name dragged through the mud for an insane charge that she did not do. Like she had been attacked everywhere in the country for a year at that point, saying that she had let or somehow aided. I, it was not even completely clear, but permitted four people who worked for her to die, which is a charge of incredible gravity. I mean, people are talking about like in the, the real sort of far right, talking about treason. This was before lock her up became a thing for emails, but there was a lot of like kind of lock her up sentiment. And she had to do hearings on it. And she, I'm sure, felt unbelievably unfairly slandered. And you know what? She came up and treated the thing as part of the thing that happens in a democratic republic. Like you just, you got to go and you got to answer the questions because people have them and that's how it works. Kevin is a judge. The idea that he cannot step outside himself enough to recognize that while it may be awful for him and it's possible that he has, you know, if this happened, totally forgotten it, right? I'm, I'm open to the idea that his anger is completely real. But the idea that amidst credible allegations of past sexual assault, 
they just have to be investigated. It's not about him. It's about the system. It's about the rule of law. It's about the trust we can have in people on the Supreme Court. And the idea that he's responded to that investigation, and yes, there's like politics happening around it and people writing op-eds and people sending tweets, and I'm sure a lot of it is unbelievably painful, but like you go into it at this level and like the fact that he can't step outside of himself enough to be like, yeah, you know what? Like somebody being considered to be one of the highest judges in the land, you're going to have to like investigate stuff like this to make sure that the law is being administered by people who are credible in administering it. And so I don't buy the thing that the only possible reaction Kavanaugh could have had to this is to lie and to rage against Democrats and to suggest that delaying this for even another day to try to investigate what happened, given that the other witnesses are credible and there's past corroboration of what they said, is like, that's how the system is supposed to work. It's very frustrating to me that like his reaction is being seen as like the only possible reaction you can have, and as opposed to reaction that is not the one you're supposed to have here. To elevate a little bit, something that I thought that was quite elevated. I'm elevating even more, elevating beyond Brett Kavanaugh. Wow, to the to the meaning of the Supreme can, Court. Something that I I realized that high? was a little bit lurking in the background of of this whole thing is that my perception, and I think the perception of most politically engaged liberals, is that the Supreme Court of the United States has had a conservative majority on it since sometime in the early 1980s, right? That there has been at one point a five to four conservative majority and that with the replacement of Sandra Day O'Connor by uh, Samuel Alito, it became even more conservative and that with the replacement of Anthony Kennedy by whomever, it's going to become even more conservative than it was before, but that it has been conservative all along. And you can see that it's a conservative majority in the fact that both like the bulk of the rulings went on the conservative side and the fact that the majority of the justices were appointed by Republican presidents and the fact that in the year 2000, the conservative majority said that rather than counting votes so we could see who had won the election, we were just going to make George W. Bush be president. And in the fact that Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy both strategically timed their retirements to put Republican successors in, that like this has been a conservative majority for decades, for basically my entire and Garland. life. Well, and that then what happened with the Scalia-Garland thing is essentially Republicans were saying – and I, I understand why they like chose to use their authority this way. But that the rule they were putting in place is that nothing should ever allow Democrats to have a majority on the Supreme Court, right? That like that is what was at issue there was that having dominated the Supreme Court – for decades was not good enough that they should dominate it forever. An increasingly aggressive Supreme Court that has just started throwing laws out willy-nilly with like no textual support whatsoever. But that conservatives see it the other way, right? That because Kennedy has sort of centrist views on abortion and liberal views on LGBT rights, they feel like they've been losing at the Supreme Court for generations, despite the Nixon, Reagan, Bush sort of ascendancy in, in the White House, and that they are fighting like dogs, but just to for once get a fair shot at things, right? And that's like a big clash of perspectives across the Garland, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh sort of nominations, right? It's like, are we talking about radicalizing and further entrenching a conservative majority that we've already had for a generation and that there appears to be like actually no way within the 
bounds of the rules, the Democrats can break it? Or are we finally, for once, letting conservatism get its get its breath of fresh air? And like I have a clear view who's right and who's wrong about this. Abortion is an important topic in American public policy, but it is obviously not the only issue. And particularly the Kennedy's jurisprudence on abortion has not even been that liberal. You know, but I think that's like part of what we are struggling with here. And conservatives are not fully understanding, I think, that putting somebody as damaged as Kavanaugh on the bench is going to give Democrats license to engage in the sort of procedural radicalism that thought leaders on the left probably would want to engage in anyway. So, I mean, I want to give a little more credence to the conservative viewpoint on this because I do think like when you kind of look at the areas of jurisprudence that matter, that abortion really is a polarizing one. And in that place, I think abortion advocates have been pretty, you know, not fully happy, but pretty happy with what what has happened since the Roe decision. One Roe has been upheld. It's been, so you've seen the court uphold Roe in 1973, guaranteeing basically a right to a first trimester abortion, some rights to second trimester, and very, very limited rights to third trimester abortion, but a pretty liberal decision. You then see that followed with Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which allows states to create more restrictions. You know, abortion advocates weren't thrilled with this. These are things like, waiting periods, um, but others are knocked down. For example, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, they say, um, you know, some of these laws around parental consent are not allowed. That I, I do think when I talk to, you know, I spent earlier in my reporting career a lot of time covering the pro-life and pro-choice movements, and that this really was the issue where pro-life advocates felt stuck, that they would put up these laws in states, they would send them up to the Supreme Court, and they could not get a ruling that they wanted. The most recent example would be um, in Texas, where the Supreme Court struck down some laws there that um, were abortion restrictions, or kind of like a backdoor abortion restriction, requiring clinics there to have really, meet really stringent standards about the widths of their hallways and different sort of facilities. And the Supreme Court struck that down. So I will say, you know, in this one area that does tend to catalyze more activism on the right, that definitely is, at least historically, has been more of a motivating issue on the right versus the the left, although maybe that'll change if we do see a shift in the court. Maybe we're already seeing that change with a lot of the activism that's happening to defend Roe. So I will say, you know, from the viewpoint of folks who oppose abortion, that this has not felt like a conservative court to them. You know, another area where it hasn't felt like a conservative court is the Affordable Care Act, where you see it actually making all these rulings that generally uphold the Affordable Care Act, Medicaid expansion aside. So you see, like, on these polarizing and, and, you know, not technical issues, like the decisions that are, like, covered on the nightly news, the decisions, like, people hear about Obamacare, they hear about abortion, that it has not felt like a conservative court on these kind of really, you know, well-publicized. But the one place I, I very much take your point on on abortion, the one thing that I do think you're seeing there, though, is how far right conservatism is going in real time. So it's like, I would say the Affordable Care Act rulings really were like, maybe Republicans didn't like them, but they were insanely conservative. I mean, I was looking back at some work I had done because for a piece I'm doing. And when the Affordable Care Act challenges began, people like Orrin Kerr were saying there's like a less than 1% chance the court takes this seriously. Orrin Kerr was a Supreme Court clerk, I think for 
is it Kennedy? Anyway, he's a very well-respected right-leaning judicial scholar. And, you know, and I have a lot of people saying that to me on the record. You you heard this, like nobody took this seriously. And then it was taken seriously. And similarly, the Medicaid expansion was not thought to be uh, in um, jeopardy and ultimately was cut up. And so, you know, and I remember talking to these same scholars right before it went to the Supreme Court, you know, after it had gone through like all these lower conservative courts and got in favorable rulings on their side. And they're saying, oh, it's 50-50, it gets overturned. So I just – I want to be a little careful on that because what I think – when I look at that, I think there was such – I mean that to me is like one of the moments where I was like, okay, the court is just basically a political body. And like maybe Republicans couldn't push it as far into an unbelievably radical place as they wanted it to go where the party that complains about legislating from the bench wanted them to uproot and repeal the entirety of the Affordable Care Act all at once because they didn't like it. But to me, one of the things that has kept happening – and I I think it's embedded a little bit in Matt's story – is that – Republican judges are getting named and then the party is moving further right and then there's a delta between like the conservative judge named at like early Reagan or early Bush and like where the party has gone and then the party's like wait these this we're not getting conservative rulings but like they are the rulings are quite conservative they're just like the Republican party is getting conservative at such an accelerating rate and what they are demanding has become like so outlandish like again repeal the entirety of the affordable characters we don't like it and then they're like oh see like we're we're losing it the court, like they've completely moved the goalposts in a way that like a couple of years ago, I would have never even imagined. I just think it's worth, you know, we're counting a serious thing, right? This is a double standard, right? So post Casey, they overturn some abortion restrictions, but not all of them. So that's a loss for the right. But also post ACA, they overturn part of the ACA, but not all of it. And that's also a loss for the right. And like it is, but that's it's just like it's a loss relative to a very robust thing. And the other thing about abortion, I mean again, abortion is important. It matters a lot to a lot of people. People have a lot of very strong feelings about it. That said, if your primary goal jurisprudentially had been to overturn Casey and return power over abortion to the states, right? The easy way to get that done would have been to replace Justice Kennedy with like an anti-Kennedy justice, right, with a justice who took a very hardline view that judges should be very modest and should overturn like almost nothing and should be very deferential to, uh, you know, political branches of government, right? Pro-choice advocates would hate somebody like that. They would mobilize against him. Most Democrats would mobilize against him. But, you know, like the AFL-CIO would look at that and say like, oh, that's actually – going to be an improvement relative to Justice Kennedy, who's like doing rulings saying that public sector labor unions are illegal, right? And Democrats from red states, right, Joe Donnelly, Joe Manchin, Heidi Heitkamp, would have a really hard time voting no on a justice like that, who would in fact be really easily confirmed. But the Republican Party coalition is like fanatically devoted to this incredibly unpopular, like, business deregulatory agenda and they fight like crazy through like low and dishonest means to implement it. And so like not a single person in the Republican Senate caucus or in the Trump White House is out there saying the reason we need Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court is to make virtually all federal economic regulation unconstitutional. But like that's what he thinks. You know, like he believes that the National Security Agency's bulk surveillance of Americans' call data is fine, but that the existence of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is a threat to Americans' individual liberty. And like that is what Brett Kavanaugh thinks and it is not idiosyncratic. 
right? Like th- this is like what conservatives have been ruling for 10, 15 years. And they – I don't know why, but like the movement like refuses to acknowledge that like this is the case, that like a really big thing that they do is they win elections on culture war campaigns and then they put judges in who will put forward economic policy ideas that are so toxically unpopular that they would never in a million years vote for it, even though right now <laughs> Republicans are running around saying that they support, you know, protections for pre-existing conditions while their judges and their legal people are like trying to get it all tossed. And I don't even know what to say about it, but like it just it drives me crazy. But I mean, if that's your goal, so this kind of like circles back to where we started. So like if that is your goal, it kind of like brings me back to this question of like why stick with Brett Kavanaugh? Like you said, they're not idiosyncratic views. Like you could find – you could see like on Earth too where the Republicans say, you know what? Like we can't litigate this. We're not moving forward. You know, we've gotten calls from our constituents saying, you know, they don't want us to move forward on this. You know, we're going to this list we have. We're picking someone else off of it. We're – going to confirm them before we need you to vote for us in the midterms so that we can stay in office so that we can confirm this person so we can confirm other Supreme Court justices. And I don't I mean, like, I don't know if you think, Ezra, like that tribalism is just that strong that it prevents the concession. If it's, you know, I think if you, we talked about this a little bit on the Friday that the polling suggests that, you know, maybe people just don't care as much about this incident that, you know, if you look at Republican voters, that they aren't as troubled by it as Democratic voters might be. Like, I don't know what it is, but it seems like if that is the if that is the story of why is what is happening, it makes the decision to stick with Kavanaugh even more surprising and baffling to me when when you know these aren't just views that are specific to this one person who comes with all this baggage at this point. I think that's totally right. You know, I look, I do think it's tribalism, and I do think if you look at the strategy they've run going back now about a week, um, it's been a Fox News strategy all the way through. It's been a mobilize the base on Kavanaugh's behalf strategy. So the basic thing, I think, is that which Republican senator wants to be the one to say, I am going to kill the Kavanaugh nomination and, like, absorb the fury of the entire Republican base and Donald Trump and all the rest of it? What they should do collectively is drop him, right? Like, what they should have done is, like, take him into a back room and say, listen, I'm really sorry. You need to pull out of the thing. But he came out and said, under no circumstances will I withdraw from this process. Like, there is no way I will give you a safe out. Like, that was what that – that was actually – I think people mistook this. That was a message to Republicans on the committee. Right. When he came out and said, I will never, ever, ever withdraw. You may vote me down on the floor, but I will be here. He was saying to them, like, either you're going to be sitting there like with a dagger in your hand, having killed me with like everybody in the Republican Party watching you or you're going to vote for me. Right. Like those are your options. Like I'm not giving you a, a way out. And like when they gave like the interview on Fox News as opposed to go on like NBC's like Lester Holt, you know, like and, and talking to a broader cross section of America when he gave that incredibly angry anti-democratic like this is a democratic plot. It's a Clinton revenge plot. It's because they think Donald Trump is an illegitimate president. It was all about activating that base to defend him so Republicans couldn't defect. And so what you are saying is 100 percent correct. Like if – this were like an AI plotting their strategy, like he'd be gone, right? And like Amy Coney Barrett would be the nominee. But it's not, you know, and and politics, it gets hot and it gets irrational and it's about shows of strength and force. And so 
Kavanaugh remains a nominee even as, like to your point, I think it is much worse for them to confirm him than to drop him out and put him in with someone else. Like I, I get why it'd be worse for them to like let Democrats put up a justice. I get that. Like the substance of the rulings is important, but they're activating Democrats around the court the way Republicans got activated around the court. And like long term, that's not good for the right. I would love to hear like what Amy Barrett is like. <laughs> it's like, come on, guys. Like, right here. What are you doing? Hey. Hey. Rested and ready. Is it okay. time for a break? Let's take a break. We're going to talk about NAFTA. Canadian NAFTA milk. 2. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. NAFTA is dead. Uh, Long live NAFTA. Announced this week. What's it replaced with, Matt? It is replaced with, you can't say it. But so Trump, I actually think this is good. Like one thing that Donald Trump is good at is like branding. And Obama had promised to renegotiate NAFTA. And he said that the Trans-Pacific Partnership constituted that. But it didn't like fly. It didn't stick with people. So like Trump is saying that part of changing the terms of NAFTA is that there is no NAFTA anymore. There is a new agreement. It is called USMCA, which is not a pronounceable acronym. And it's very similar to NAFTA, right? Like the most important aspects of NAFTA that like most goods can flow between Canada, the United States and Mexico without tariffs is like still in place, right? So there's a few changes. One is Trump did win more access to American dairy farmers to the Canadian market, right? That was an exception Canada wrote into NAFTA. And now there is a partial exception to the exception. Game-changing. Um, so that's that's one so thing. So more American milk in Canada. Dairy products more Dairy broadly. Dairy cheese. There's also – it's going to be easier to sell American-made cheese to Mexico, uh, which is currently quite difficult. Um, and um, I, I don't know. It's going to probably make Mexican cuisine more like Tex-Mex 
cheesier. Then there's also a big changes to intellectual property, right? So Canada is adopting America's longer copyright terms, and they are also raising the length of time that new biologic drugs are immune from generic competition. So that's important to Hollywood and important to American pharmaceutical makers. And then there's a change to cars. It's sort of a twofold change. One is that there's a higher requirement that all the car parts be made from inside the NAFTA block. So it used to be, I think, 60 percent and it's going up to 75 percent. And there's also – in effect, they are asking the Mexican auto industry to increase its minimum wage to $16 an hour, at least for many Mexican car part factories, um, which is a very large increase. And I think it's somewhat – ambiguous as to whether the upshot of that is going to be a pay raise for Mexican auto workers or just a reduction in like the use of Mexico as a manufacturing facility. I think the Mexicans convinced themselves that this was just going to end up raising pay in their factories so it was a concession they could make. But the car part stuff, it's interesting to me, right? Because like the case against doing something like that is pretty obvious, right? Like it's cars are going to be made more expensive. And then me not being Donald Trump or Republican, but a kind of like weenie environmentalist. Like I actually think that's good. Like Donald Trump hit on a way to make cars more expensive without hurting American auto workers. Um, so that's like that's a pretty good idea. Um, <laughs> this intellectual property stuff, by contrast, it just copies exactly what's dysfunctional about the trade negotiating process, which is that instead of looking at it and saying like, what would be good for like, like what do typical Americans need out of the trade relationship with Canada? It just says like, what do some powerful American interest groups, like what would they like the Canadian government to do? And then we kind of just bully them, right? And this happens a lot. So like one of the big things in TPP is that like, America has no domestic textile production, but some countries have like preferential access to the American textile market. So then the Obama administration offered more countries to get that same preferential access, but in exchange, they would have to adopt American strong drug protections. And in many cases, what we were asking for in TPP were proposals that were stronger than the administration's own domestic proposals yes. because they were like bureaucratic ships passing in the night, right? So like HHS was saying U.S. intellectual property protections are too stringent. But the uh, the trade office just like listens to what the lobbyists want and tries to get it from foreign countries. So they were asking for protections that the Obama administration maintained were too strong. But then when they presented their checklist to like journalists, they were like, this is a big win we got. But this is what I, I do want to yeah. note. These intellectual property protections are one of the most loathed parts of TPP. And they are now in this new deal. I mean, something a lot of people have observed is um, Richard Haas, who's the head of the Council on Foreign Relations, tweeted out that USMCA is NAFTA plus TPP plus a few tweaks. Like what they've done and, and, and Catherine Rampell at The Washington Post had a good call making roughly the same point that what they've done is take NAFTA. They've changed it very little, but they've layered on some of the TPP structures um, across a couple different things. I mean, there's more, more than we're mentioning here. And – one of the strange things about it is that it's not clear to me which of Donald Trump's problems is being solved here. This is not going to revitalize American manufacturing. It's not going to change our trade deficits in some inordinate way. It's the kind of thing that 
like, I don't know, you could kind of make a case for it. You can make a case against it. I really don't like the intellectual property dimensions of this. So like I lean on the, the case against, but it's just not that much. I mean, I think the thing that Donald Trump solves in this is being able to say he ended NAFTA. Yeah. Like it's not, it's like a, it, it reminds me a lot actually of kind of the trajectory of Obamacare repeal where you had, you know, they were not able to repeal Obamacare. The individual mandate gets repealed. And a few days later, President Trump is saying, we did it. We repealed Obamacare. Some polling comes out. Um, I was just looking over for another piece I'm working on, finding that um, 44% of Republicans believe Donald Trump has repealed Obamacare. Like, I think the what is done here is that we don't have NAFTA anymore. We have USMCA. And you can say, like, look, we did this thing and kind of, like, move on to whatever other, you know, things you want to move on to. So I agree, like, the policy change does not seem—I mean, you know more about it—does not seem to be that sweeping, but it, it does seem like a new acronym and, like, the ability to say, like, well, I said I'd get I'd get rid of NAFTA and get something better, and, like, look, I've done that now. I mean, if you think of trade policy as a policy topic that is, like, primarily about narrow casting to a handful of upper Midwestern swing states, like, Trump has delivered for U.S. auto parts manufacturers, right? heavily clustered in Michigan and Ohio, and he has delivered for U.S. dairy exporters, heavily clustered in Wisconsin. So that's that's not nothing, right? Like the typical American, of course, does not work in the dairy industry or the auto parts industry or live in a town that is dominated by dairy exports or auto parts. And like we are just not going to be impacted by this in a Well, this is my question. Is our milk going to get more expensive with more exporting Very, to Mexico and Canada? I thought it was going to, but actually we have this like incredible overproduction of dairy. Uh, we, we had a good article about it. They're like warehousing cheese and like destroying excess milk. Uh, so basically we're going to dump a little bit more of American excess dairy on Canadians. In a weird way, right, like the biggest impact of this on normal people is going to be that Canadians are going to get cheaper dairy products. But that was like a quote-unquote concession that the Canadian government made. But so like we are paying subsidies to American dairy farmers, like cash subsidies, whereas Canada was subsidizing its farmers with trade restrictions. So like now Canadians will be able to drink the milk that American taxpayers are paying our dairy farmers to extract from cows. And it's all a little perverse. In the back of all of this, right, there is some theory of like forging an anti-Chinese trade alliance, which was- You know who else had that theory? Sometimes what the Obama administration said TPP was about, um, and other times not. And so it is much smaller than TPP and much less effective than TPP at doing that because it includes so many fewer countries, but it is more pointed in that regard, right? Like it has a clause that basically forbids Mexico from making a free trade deal with China. It makes it harder to take Chinese auto parts, assemble them in Mexico, and then send them to the U.S. So if you took USMCA but applied it to all the TPP countries, then you would like really deliver on the overlapping parts of the Trump and Obama trade vision, which is that like we need to somehow form a big block of countries to like stick it to the Chinese. But like neither of them pulled that off. Let's take a break and then talk about our white paper. In U.S. working forests or 
forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. This is an old white paper, something like classic NBER working paper. Uh, it's called College Party Culture and Sexual Assault. Ooh, topical. Don't, don't know if that's been in the news at all. It's by Jason Lindo, Peter Siminski, and Isaac Swenson. Basically what it does is it, it looks at Division I football games, which occur not like randomly, but there's a lot of variation in, in when they happen. And then they correlate this with reports of rape with victims who are between the ages of 17 and 24. And they showed that there is a, a very large increase on the order of 28% in like college towns where their team is playing a game. And they also show that the increase is larger for home games than for away games. And that the increase is largest when the underdog wins. Right. And by the way, a bunch of other things, right? The the increase is larger for prominent games, like rivalry games, yes. um, than than for non-rivalry games. It's larger for schools with prominent teams. Um like they they have a lot of things where they show and, um like in away games, it like it it's only a significant increase if the away game was televised. Right. I mean, all of them add up though yeah. to like situations that would lead one to drink. Right, and and that, that's what they're trying to say, right? Yeah. It's not that the football games are causing this, right. but that if you look at it, right, that it's like if there's an away game that isn't on TV, then people aren't going to gather around to watch the game and drink because there's no place to right. watch it. But if you can watch the game on TV— And there's an upset win and it's like a big night, like, then you might drink heavily. Right. I'm trying to always be, like, more cautious about just, like, running with single-study things. I was a little frustrated since this isn't a brand-new paper. I was like, man, I wish there was, like, a great, robust debate about this finding with some people calling it into question and others validating it. But there sort of isn't. But, like, it it seems like a really big deal. Right. And did you say – so the the actual finding, just to be clear, I say they say we find significant and robust evidence that football game days increase reports of rape victimization among 17 to 24-year-old women by 28 percent. Home games increase reports by 41 percent. Away games, 15 percent. Those are some really big, startling numbers that are not usually what we talk about when we talk about college football. I think – a lot of the mechanisms here, and again, like I, like Matt, I wish there were more research in this space. A, a lot of this, and I think they are pretty cautious in their results to say, you know, we're, we're working with a lot of different factors. You know, we're using these different factors about games as proxies for how much drinking there might be going on. But those are some, like, startlingly large increases. And I think, you know, if you're running a Division One school with the football team, like, 
those should probably be things as a college administrator that you are thinking about and worried about. And I think it's really unfortunate that, you know, that this could be something that is happening as schools get back in session that we're just not really looking at at this point because it's, I mean, it's kind of a downer to think about the results of sexual assault as part of this, like, fun college tradition of playing football. But it, it's serious, and it's it's a big problem. Yeah, and one thing I'd point out is that these are reports, yes. right? The thing they are measuring here is reports. So the total, it, what is implied by this, given that the only a very small minority of sexual assaults actually end in a report, is that the total increase in sexual assault is very, very high. I mean, I don't know if it's a higher percentage of right. total than it is percentage of reports, but we're, we're, we're talking about very big increases in like, human suffering. They actually do a, a slightly, I thought, unusual thing and like look at their <laughs> measures of the social cost of rape. And you I know, thought that was very I thought odd. that was odd. Um, it's not how I would prefer to frame this, but, but, but I thought it was notable. I did want to note something. I thought it had a good literature review around sexual assault prevalence in colleges in general. We could do a whole weeds on those studies, right? The the sort of um, the one in five numbers and, and and other things, and what those numbers imply, and like how people get to them. But it, it offered a bunch of the other studies that people don't hear about uh, that often. I did just think in, in terms of calibrating, it writes, in terms of the most serious forms of sexual assault, 13.5% of senior undergraduate females and 2.9% of senior undergraduate males participating in the AAU survey reported they'd experienced non-consensual penetration involving physical force or incapacitation since enrolling in college. So you're talking about, you know, 13.5% of women, 3% of men by their final year of college saying that they had non-consensual penetration. That's a big number. And, and unlike some of the other studies where you're giving people what is the legal definition of sexual assault and sort of saying, has any of this ever happened to you? And people are like, oh, yeah, it has. Whether or not they themselves have coded what's happened to them as an assault. This is narrowing in on the thing that I think everybody understands of as sexual assault. And those are, I, I just want to say, like scary numbers. I mean, also, not to put too fine a point on it, but, like, the posited causal mechanism here is booze, not football. Yes. Um, which I think is is important because, I mean, I don't know how, how it was at Washington University, um, but my recollection of college is that though for the vast majority of college students it is illegal to drink alcoholic beverages, that college administrators were not taking it that way. Right. That it was, in fact, understood that sort of like one of the privileges of going to a nice, well-regarded college is that there's a kind of on-campus safe zone from ordinary legal matters. Right. Just as an example, like I had a fake ID in college and I was out at a local bar and ran into a dean you know, in the administration, who I happened to know personally, so he recognized me, was aware that I was not 21. And I got in, like, trouble over it in the sense that he made me get rid of the fake ID. But I was not, like, punished in any way, right? Just as sometimes a house party or some antics in a dorm room would get busted up by the TAs or, or something because it had gotten out of hand. But there was no, like, good faith effort to, like, make sure that underage kids were not drinking on campus. And, like, it would have been considered, I think, like, borderline insane 
for them to do. Like, it, it wasn't even under consideration. Like, should we try to actually make it be the case that nobody under the age of 21 is drinking alcohol while they're a student here? It was, like, not a subject that was up for right. discussion. And just to start where you started that thought, like, I think it'd be a mistake to read this as a paper about, you know— Division one football. Yeah. Like it is a paper. Like I did not go to a school with Division one football. I went to a Division three school where nobody cared at all about football. And there was still a lot of drinking. And like you probably right. could not run the same study that like you just didn't correlated. have the instrument. We just didn't have the. So maybe, you know, we didn't have these like spikes in drinking around football games. That does not mean there was very prevalent alcohol. Use. So I think it would be a mistake to read this as a paper that says the thing we need to do is just get rid of Division one football. Like the thing that's going on here is drinking and heavy drinking and, you know, students, myself included, like coming into a situation where they had never drank before, where there's suddenly copious amounts of alcohol available. Like that leads to some of these really problematic situations. And, and I think like to be explicit a little bit about what we're doing here, uh, like we picked this paper because it bears on this conversation we are having, not about Kavanaugh specifically, right? This paper doesn't tell you anything about what happened between Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford in 1982 or 83. But there is this conversation that I think has emerged out of it about what was and to some degree what is the culture around consent, drinking, sexual assault, um, all of it. And, you know, what I think this paper is saying is that we on some level understand the dynamics that create like an ecosystem, like a like rape culture, right? And like an ecosystem of sexual assault. We understand that alcohol is a big part of that, that the kind of party culture that surrounds college athletics is part of that. And uh, we don't do a lot about it. But it's not because we don't know. It's not because we don't have information. And in the future, it would be be good if a lot fewer people had the experience that Christine Blasey Ford did. And like obviously a lot of that is teaching men about consent and you know making sure people understand that these kinds of things will, will genuinely be punished and will change their futures, right? That it won't just be forgotten, right? That I think is one of the things that people don't even quite know how to discuss in this whole Kavanaugh thing, but we're undergoing a period of cultural change um, in treating this stuff more seriously. That's what Me Too is. And uh, like part of the reason that's important is the message it sends to to young men now. But it's also, you know, there's a question of like how much drinking should there be among like young teenagers? And it matters, right? Like these people at different points, like, you know, that, that we're talking about in this, but 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 also who are in high school or college today, they're they're in situations in which there is some amount of either parental control or administrator control. And, you know, we know a lot about the conditions that seem to to lead to a lot more sexual assault. And there are things we can do about those conditions. And I would also note, I mean, th this is relevant. I've, I've posted this this chart a couple of times, but like the prevalence of teen drinking has fallen quite a lot yep. uh, since since the early 1980s. But it also shows that like there are ways to move the needle on this that are not like 1923 prohibition. Right. Right. Or like, no more football or – Yeah, know. right. Or like there isn't any football at all, right? But to like take seriously the fact that – there's something else I, I, I want to say because I've seen some online discussions about this where people will be like, well, you know, alcohol doesn't make people into rapists or like it's not it, – and like that's true, right? It's not – it doesn't excuse it. Like you're still responsible for what you do. But it's like everything else, right? Like we understand, right? Like there's a reason why it's illegal to drive – when you're drunk, right? Like it impairs your decision making and your functioning. And like that's just true 
across the board. Sexual assault is one of many things that can go awry when people are very intoxicated. And like it's not good. And and it is good that we have through the specific mechanism of focusing on drunk driving, like wound up cutting down on excessive alcohol consumption a great deal. But I think that people actually underestimate how relevant it is to like a wider range of behaviors. You know, if I think about myself, it's like 95% of like the stupidest things that I've ever done in my life. It's like because I was drinking, you know. Back to Kavanaugh, I mean, it's part of the reason I find his like indignity and slipperiness around this drinking question so troubling. Like he literally said at one point that like we know he must not have been like hitting the sauce that hard because he got into Yale Law School and was like on a basketball team. And like that's ridiculous. You know, like and, – and, but, it's, but it's part of how this problem arises, right? I mean it's like colleges will tell themselves like, look, these are good kids. They had really high SAT scores. Like you have to work hard to get into Yale. And like that is all true. Like they are smart people and they work hard and they have good SAT scores. But like if you give them 100 kegs or bust, like they're going to get into bad shit. All right another weeds <laughs> boom okay another episode of the weeds i want to thank our engineer griffin tanner i thank all of you for listening and make sure to check out our first weeds midterm special coming out on wednesday Woo-hoo. hi we're visible we're the wireless company with nothing to hide seriously hidden fees we don't have them Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. 